0: Super excited to bring this guest to you in this episode. I cannot wait to get in this conversation. This is someone that I have admired for a very long time. Dr. Don Wood is with us today. Dr. Wood, thank you for being here.
1: Well, Angela, thank you for the invitation. I've been looking forward to this as well because I love talking about this subject.
0: Oh, I have good. A, I have a
1: different approach and a, a different mindset. You know, which I think will be really interesting for your listeners to hear.
0: Yeah, I can't wait to get into it. Why don't you take just a quick minute and let everybody know a little bit about you and what you do?
1: Sure. Um, I started the Inspired Performance Institute um, really because of the effects of trauma on my wife and my daughter. So I, I talk about I grew up in this idyllic childhood with no trauma. I mean, I got bumped every once in a while, but not the big T kind of trauma. I played hockey so I could fight, so I wasn't gonna get bullied and picked on, right? And my mom was at every event I ever, every game I ever played, so I was not a good target for predators. (laughs) And I just assumed everybody was living in my world. I thought all my friends, I didn't know what they were dealing with because nobody talks about it. Nobody talks about the dysfunction inside their home. So I didn't realize how many of them were dealing with emotional, physical, sexual abuse. And it wasn't until I met my wife when I was 18 that I realized that she was not living in the world that I grew up in. And this was like news to me that this could happen. I thought she was an anomaly. I didn't realize I was the anomaly, right? (laughs) Most people are living with a lot of that kind of stuff going on. And so when I met my wife, I realized, you know, that she's still high functioning in terms of, you know, nobody would know it. In fact, she swore me to secrecy that nobody could ever know about her childhood and what she's experienced, which didn't make sense to me because it didn't affect the way I thought about her, but she thought everybody would. And then when my daughter was 14, she was diagnosed with Crohn's and then they um, she basically told us that she's going to end up with a colostomy bag, like they're just going to have to treat her with steroids and there's no cure for Crohn's. And so she went for years, had four resections done. She also developed something called idiopathic pulmonary hemosiderosis, which is another autoimmune disorder where the uh, iron builds up in the lungs and then it just bleeds out. Mm. And so anyway, that was almost a death sentence. So that's when my wife said to me, she says, you need to figure this out. You need to, uh, I've done all the research. I can't find any answers. You need to figure this out. So. I went back on my Ph.D. and started studying and uh, and that's really how I came up with the program. And I made the direct connection between trauma and inflammation in the body and the inflammation in the body affects and compromises the immune system and the neurotransmitters. So people are getting physically sicker and mentally feeling bad that combination leads exactly to what we're going to talk about with you today.
0: Yeah, Um, absolutely. And you know, it's so fascinating to me too, that we hear so much talk about the connection, you know, mind body spirit connection. And when you have a serious illness, uh, I have one of my brothers actually has Crohn's disease too. When you have a, a significant illness or you're in the hospital, they always say, stay in good spirits, right? Mm-hmm. And there's all this research about how powerful laughter is and mindset and positivity, but somehow we don't really connect it to our daily lives and how we live. Yep. But yeah. all of those things have such a major impact on, mm-hmm on, on your body, right? I mean, trauma for sure, it's going to come out physically if we don't learn how to deal with it.
1: It's going to show up somewhere. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and It's going to show up in different places for different people. And that really comes back to genetically the weakest area of your system. So for my daughter, that would be in her gut? My wife ended up with Hashimoto's, a thyroid disorder. So no two people are going to end up with exactly the same kind of issue which I think creates a confusion, Mm -hmm. right? So everybody who got traumatized ended up with Crohn's, we would figure it out, but because that happened, right. It's like, well, we don't know what creates Crohn's. I know what creates Crohn's now a hundred percent, maybe not, but the majority of the people I think is coming from trauma.
0: Yeah. Definite correlation for sure. I know also something that when I was learning about trauma myself, um, which probably started for me in school. I didn't go to college until I was much older. I was 37, I think, before I went to college. And I feel like there was so much misconception about trauma. There were so many things I was learning that I was shocked. And some of the things that are considered trauma, or you can internalize as trauma, are really everyday life events. Mm -hmm. And I always thought, like I think a lot of people do, that trauma are all of these big things, right? Combat, of course, is something you always hear, like violent crime, sexual assault, like those are traumas. But I had no idea that natural disaster, car accidents, you know, all of those things can be traumatic events, also. And I think. It, for me, caused me to minimize many of my experiences and not and almost talk myself out of it. Like, oh, well, sure, I don't have that. You know, like, I guess that's not what's wrong with me. It must be something else. Do you see that a lot in your work?
1: A lot. That, that's why the second book I wrote, I called Emotional Concussions, because they're like emotional concussions. They're not the big T trauma. Right. They're those little bumps that you got, those little knocks on your head. Right. But if you have enough concussions, they accumulate.
0: Right. Yes. That so, was the other thing that fascinated me is trauma is accumulative.
1: Yes. And so and and it can even go all the way back down to childhood with a, a parent that was critical. Right. A teacher that, you know, called you stupid. The, you know, it could be a single event or a numerous number of over a period of time. Same similar theme those can create emotional concussions, which are going to affect the way we respond to our environment. Sure. And the best way to look at it is anything that threatens our survival. So you would say, well, how could something like that from childhood, you know, so maybe a parent that doesn't show enough love to you, right? Well, that's a fear, right. Of being abandoned, Mm -hmm. right. Or a parent that your parents break up, a divorce happens, then the child ends up with an issue of, you know, well, they fell out of love. How long before they fall out of love with me? And so,
0: Oh, fascinating.
1: Because children don't have enough life experience to understand what they're, what's happening to them. Sure. So they attach a whole bunch of meanings to it. That means I'm not safe. It mm-hmm. means that I'm not loved. It means that I'm not smart enough. All those different little meanings that if we looked at it as an adult would say, well, how'd they come up with that? Right? but to a child who doesn't have enough life experience to put this in perspective you can see how easily that can happen
0: yeah well i think too you can have similar experiences as an adult in in dysfunctional relationships unhealthy relationships mm-hmm. certainly narcissistic abuse you know it and some i think just emotional immaturity you know it's like one of the most important things that we should be learning in school (laughs) is emotional intelligence, but they're not teaching us those things, you know? And then, and then also if you have, right, if you have trauma as a kid, right, then you go out into the world and you're not having the healthiest relationships. You're not picking the healthiest people because your self view is skewed, right? So you can have, I think, Similar responses in unhealthy relationships, even as an adult, thinking I'm not good enough, nobody else will ever love me. I better stay with this person. How will I find anybody else?
1: Exactly. All those kinds of things. Those are all the meanings that may have started as far back as your childhood. Yeah. And so, like I said, it it just it's one of the things that we look at a lot because a lot of stuff comes back to childhood.
0: I know and we don't want to talk about childhood. <laughs> right. But it is like I mean that is your formative stuff, right? That's where your the the foundation is created. So all of this stuff plays together. So talk to me a little bit about your approach. I know you talk about relieving stress and anxiety, sleeping better, all of these magical things that, especially those of us with addiction, those are the things we all dream of. So tell me a little bit about how you do it and what your approach is.
1: Well, like I said, it was a very different approach because I came in from a different standpoint from not having any trauma. So my wife says we were the perfect Petri dishes because I knew what the model was, what we were trying to get to. I could stay present in, in the moment easier than she could because my nervous system as a child was being regulated constantly. So I grew up with a constant. So it wasn't that I couldn't get bumped every once in a while, you know, maybe something happens at school with a teacher or a friend, but I'm coming home and instantly going back into that homeostasis and safe place. So my nervous system could expand and then could come back in into the right place. My wife couldn't do that because she was living in the jungle right? So she had no escape. So if she went to school and something happened. She couldn't come home and get that nurturing environment that I had. Mm. So what I realize is this is just coming down to a dysregulation of our nervous system. And the dysregulation is coming in from memory. So only humans store explicit details about events and experiences. Animals don't do that. Animals, we, we we have two memory systems, the explicit memory system, where we store all the details about events and experiences. And when we have the same memory that animals have, which is that associative, procedural, repet- repetitive memory system, right? You learn through um, repetition. So we're literally building codes just like a computer does. And, and in fact, that's what I call addiction is a code that got mm-hmm. built right?
0: Yeah. Because
1: you repeated something over and over, you built a code, and your mind follows codes. So your subconscious mind, which is your survival brain is fully present in the moment all the time. And it's operating about 95% of everything on for you on a day to day basis. We have two things that no animal has we have this intellect, this frontal lobe, that's our ability to use reason and logic. So we can figure stuff out. If we don't know how to do something, we can figure out a way to do it. If an animal doesn't know how to do something, they can't figure it out. Mm. They can either do it or they can't. So if you want to teach an animal, you have to use their memory system, which is association and repetition, to teach them something new. So we have that system and the explicit memory. So here's where what I call a glitch comes in. If 95% of your mind operating just like the animal mind, survival-based in the moment, and for some reason it accesses memory from five years ago or 10 years ago, when does it think that memory is actually happening?
0: Right now.
1: And so it's built to respond to threats. So its whole idea is you're being threatened even though it's only information about a threat.
0: Now explain the central nervous system piece of this.
1: Yeah, so your nervous system will become activated you'll go, so you have your parasympathetic and your sympathetic nervous system. Your sympathetic nervous system is your fight or flight response. Your parasympathetic is your rest and digest response. So when we're not in a threatening situation as we're just sitting here now, our parasympathetic nervous system is basically taking care of everything for us physiologically. If a threat came in, all automatically, right, below your conscious awareness, you would go into a fight or flight or freeze response. That's designed to protect you. What keeps activating it is the memory about events and experiences. That's what I didn't understand until I started doing all this research. So I could say something like to my wife, no, I don't like that. And she would tear up and say, why are you upset with me? And I'd go, where did you get I was upset from what I just said? That made no sense to me. Yeah. What I didn't understand at the time was that if I had this slight little tension in my voice from maybe something earlier in the day or a little frustration with a drive home, right? I couldn't hear it if you paid me, right? But my wife could hear the slightest inflection change in my voice because as a child, she had learned to listen very carefully to the way her father spoke. So she could recognize when danger was coming. So children who have been traumatized are highly sensitive to sound which I didn't understand. So I couldn't understand why she thought I was upset with her. I couldn't hear it. So she wasn't wrong and I wasn't wrong. Mm -hmm. She heard it differently. So I thought, well, I gotta change the way I speak. I've gotta be more careful with what I say. I gotta choose my words better. I could keep doing it. I couldn't (laughs) stop it. And so now what I realized that was happening is when I said, no, I don't like that. And she heard the slight little inflection change. Her survival brain does a Google search. What do we know about men who start to get angry when we hear that tension? And a flood of data from her childhood would come in and her central nervous system would be activated into responding to protect her. She wasn't crying because of what I said.
0: Mm -hmm. She was
1: crying because her mind was looking at a lot of data about pain and being hurt. That was the game changer when I discovered that. Because as long as that's happening, right, you're never going to be able to stop it right. until you get it resolved. And the way I describe it is because we have a threatening event, all your senses are heightened sight, smell, hearing. So if I asked you what you ate for dinner last night, can you tell me what you ate for dinner? I can't. How about <laughs> breakfast? <laughs>
0: Yes. For breakfast, I had overnight oats.
1: (laughs) Okay. So when I asked you that, you saw pictures, right, of what you ate?
0: Yes. Right?
1: That's how you stored the information about breakfast this morning. Now, no animal does that. Only humans do that. But because this morning was not a threatening event, it's stored as a fairly routine file, not a lot of data. If you were in a threatening event, you go into a very high beta brainwave state where your mind is cycling it between 15 to 30 hertz, closer to 30. So it's taking in tremendous amounts of data, everything that's happening in that event. So all this data is coming in and being stored in what I call high definition. So when your mind recalls, if I said something to you about, oh, I have a friend, Johnny, and all of a sudden you think about Johnny and something that happened to you with Johnny, and all of a sudden you start to feel your heart pounding because I said, Johnny, you'll go, why would i be upset about that right it's because your mind did the google search about johnny and then a whole bunch of data would be being read which would then activate your nervous system and you couldn't stop that right the only way that we can stop it from what i have found is to be able to get your mind to reprocess that high definition data into the same format as to what you ate for breakfast this morning and then it stops calling for the action
0: Right. And your brain will, it will store things and memories on all of those different sensory things, right? Mm-hmm. Like, cause I feel like when I did EMDR, mm-hmm. things like when my brain would just start going through the Rolodex, like there were things that were connected that I would have had no idea. Like, If I was thinking of a specific emotion or a person associated with the emotion, right? Like all of these different things would come up. And I was like, wow, where the heck did that come from? But it will, your brain will store all these different people, places, things based on different information.
1: Right. So it's always looking for similar or same. So if something is similar or same, then it's going to start reviewing that data. Now, the approach that I take is a little bit different. What I say is an emotion is a response to a memory. It's not connected to the memory. So emotions are a call for an action. Mm -hmm. The purpose of fear is to escape a threat. The purpose of anger is to attack a threat. So when you think about something that happened to you five years ago and then you feel fear, The purpose of the fear is it wasn't stored with the memory. The information activates it because Mm. now your mind calls for an action. It says we need to to do something, right? And so then it calls you into an action. That's what I say is a little bit different. And so that's why when we reprocess that memory, then it stops calling for the action. So the emotion doesn't come anymore because there's no call for an action.
0: Right. And when you say reprocess, are you speaking of an ART or EMDR?
1: Yeah. So I do a few different kinds of techniques, but similar thing. I studied all of those as well, but I do mine much quicker. So I'm doing mine in about a two to three minute highlight reel. That's about it. So if I asked you to tell me about a particular event that was, you know, disturbing, traumatic or whatever, All I'm looking for is about two minutes. Yeah. You can either do it visually. We can do it where you talk about it and I take you through the techniques or I have you tell me in a new language and I just have you tell me in a language called flowing. There's only one word in the flowing language and it's flowing. So instead of saying I walked into the room, you would say flowing, flowing, flow, every word's flowing. But as you're saying flowing, you have to go into memory. Right. So the reason why what I like what I do is I don't need to know the the event. I don't need to know any of the details about the event. Mm -hmm. Your mind knows what it is. All I need to do is get your mind to reprocess. it. Right. So it's very safe. So especially when I work with anybody who's had a sexual assault, it's very difficult to sit there and start talking about that. For sure. So I don't need to know. I have no idea what the event is.
0: Now, how do you prepare someone to do this work in the before and after?
1: So, you mean during? So, I do about a four hour session.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: So, during those four hours, the first hour and a half, I'm doing a lot of education and science. We're talking about that. Um, So, we're not getting into any of the events yet. So, by the time we get to the events, we're about two hours in. When we get to that point, the mind is in a very restorative mindset. And that's why it's just so fast. Yeah. So by the time we get you there, it's just like blowing over these events. Yeah. People are amazed, like how are you doing this so fast? And so the way I explain it is we're taking that memory from a high beta brainwave state into the same state you are right now, which is an alpha brainwave state. So it provides basically a counter-frequency. So if you're in a high beta state with the memory, but I have you in a very peaceful, relaxed, focused state, the mind will then start to reprocess it in the state it's in.
0: Right. Okay. That's
1: why it updates it so quickly.
0: And what about like for the, after the session, because I know when I did – this is exactly why I'm asking this question. When I did EMDR, I wish I wish I would have been told, like, some of the things that could happen after. Not that anything bad happened, but, like, I had one session that was really powerful, and mm-hmm. I literally – went home and slept for almost 24 hours. <laughs> you know, sure. like I had no idea. Like, thankfully I'm an entrepreneur and, you know, I have some flexibility in my schedule, but I was like, what if I had to go to work later that day or something, you know, like that would have been a challenging situation. Um, I definitely had times that after a session, I would just be off, not necessarily sad, but but definitely heavy, You know, Mm -hmm. and I just feel like I wish somebody would have told me that stuff going in, you know, so I could have worked around it because I had no idea.
1: We tend not to have that problem because in that four hours, I, I get actually the opposite. People going home saying, I feel light. I slept better than I've ever slept. Things look brighter, right? Because we're doing this all in four hours. I know EMDR, how many sessions did you do with EMDR?
0: oh probably eight or ten
1: yeah so eight or ten about an hour each session yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah so they're doing so i always i always look at it this way if i played golf right and then i played one hole every day right for eight days yeah. i'm probably not gonna play my best it's gonna take me i'm it's gonna hard to get warmed up yeah but if i play all those holes on the same four hours i'm probably gonna play better because i'm gonna get into a rhythm and a swing That's why I do it in four hours, because I can get you into that mindset in that couple of hours that we can then just knock them out fast.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Because there definitely were, I would say I probably had more sessions that I felt like weren't super successful than I had sessions that I thought were great. You know, like I just, I don't know. And I think this was going to be another question I was going to ask you what about people who are really disassociated mm-hmm. from feeling or or even their past trauma, right? If you're disassociated, how can you get in and have a successful session?
1: Well, that's why I say the four hours is the key, because I have you long enough that I can get you out of that disassociation where like you said, why some sessions were better than others is that you couldn't get into a restorative mindset. Mm -hmm. Something else could have been happening during that week or during that time or whatever that didn't allow your mind to get there. But when I have you there for four hours, I know I'm going to get you there.
0: Right. And And this is something I think is so important in any therapeutic relationship or helping professional. It doesn't have to be a therapist or a counselor or psychotherapist. Any helping professional, it is super important that you have a good relationship with that person and you trust them. Mm-hmm. And I think that was a block for me. I, I hit a certain place with, with the clinician I was working with where I didn't trust that they had enough skill to get me through, right? Yeah. And it it just hit this place. And I know a lot, right? Like I've done mm-hmm. this work for a long time and I'm very well-read and researched and that probably works against me. And I'm also very logical, you know? So I, I'm not easy <laughs> in this situation, right. it's <laughs> but to yeah. It, to do with this. <laughs> but it was a game changer, right? When I hit that place where I was like, oh, wait a minute, they might not really have the experience level to be able to get me farther than where I'm at right now. And and that really made an impact on that relationship. So I always tell people too, if you are going to venture into something like this, and you are ready to look at some of your trauma and get some help, you have to believe in and trust the person that you're working with.
1: 100%. And that's why with our program, what I've done is we have it obviously one-on-one with me, but I also developed it a digital online program. And so people can sometimes do that on their own. I take them through the same four hour session, but I also were having people who were starting to develop a facilitator program where a facilitator will take the person through the online program. And so, because what I, and it's exactly why I did this, because of what you were just talking about, I could go out and try to train people to do what I do, But if they don't get the experience and people are going to come back and say, that didn't work for me. So by making them follow the program through the facilitation, I know everybody's getting the same experience. Right. And so and if so, if they've got a good relationship with the person, plus I can build a relationship with them by doing the online, it's a perfect as a dynamite combination.
0: Yeah, for sure. So talk to me a little bit about the correlation, trauma, and addiction.
1: So I definitely made that connection so that what is happening. And the first thing I do when I sit down with somebody, the very first thing I do when I sit down is I say, there's nothing wrong with you.
0: Amen. There's
1: nothing wrong with your mind.
0: <laughs> yes. Your mind
1: works perfectly fine.
0: In fact, our minds usually are a little more advanced than a yep. lot of people. Like I always say, addicted people, we have brains that move very quickly and, and we are really smart people. So our brains are in overdrive.
1: Absolutely, yep. And so when I, when I start off with that, that there's nothing wrong with you, there's nothing wrong with your mind, your mind has been affected by some events and experiences that are interfering with your ability to stay present and in the moment. So you've got some pain when I talk to them that way, right? We take away, I take away a lot of that shame and guilt because that's the approach they keep taking with people is to shame them and guilt them into changing their behavior. Well, that's generally what got them in problem in the first place, Mm -hmm. right? So we need to change the way we're, we're working with these people. We need to change the way we talk to them. So right off the bat, I'm just saying nothing wrong with you. All we need to do is that you must have been... So I worked with a a young lady, 17 years in addiction. I mean, she was on everything you could imagine. She had OD'd twice. And so when she came in to see me, uh, you'll see her testimonial on her site. The first thing I said to her is I said, Michelle, you've had a lot of trauma, right? And she goes, yeah, how do you know? And I says, well, 17 years of addiction, I'm pretty sure you've had a lot of trauma. And I says, plus I can hear it in your voice. And so I said, I'm going to show you how we can actually change the way you've been responding for 17 years very easily, very quickly. There's nothing wrong with you. Because you've had pain, you found a resource that temporarily stopped that pain. So what does that say about your character, your willpower, your morals, your ethics? Nothing. It's never been about that. It's been about stopping pain. Because you found these resources and you repeated them, you built a code. So your mind, your subconscious mind, which is survival based is literal. It doesn't use reason and logic. Mm -hmm. If that substance stops my pain, it doesn't see it as good or bad, right or wrong. It just sees it as a solution.
0: Effective.
1: Very effective. (laughs) Yeah. So I had a lady come in who had been um, in therapy for seven years. And she said, I told my therapist, I was coming to see you. And he told me that I have to be honest with you and tell you upfront that I have self-destructive behavior. So I just smiled at her and I said, really, what would make you think you're self-destructive? And so she looks at me, cause she hasn't heard this before. And she says, well, I'm sticking a needle in my arm with heroin. Don't you think that's self-destructive? And I said, no, I don't. I think you're trying to feel better. And I bet you when you stuck the needle in your arm, you felt better. She goes, yeah. And I said, You're not destructive. The substance is destructive. Mm -hmm. I said, all we need to do is to get to the root of what created that pain for you to look for that resource. When we get that pain resolved, right, you'll no longer need the resource. I said, your mind, your brain, and your body has a better chemical lab in it than you'll ever find anywhere on any street. I said, you can do this all on your own. You can feel good. You don't need anything coming into your body.
0: Yes, I love that.
1: Yeah. And so anyway, so Michelle, 17 years of addiction, we put her on the program. She was also smoking. She was on seven different medications. She quit smoking within 10 days. She's never touched a drug again in two and a half years. She's got her daughter back. The courts awarded her daughter. She lost her daughter. She's totally restored her relationship with her family, working full time. And you know how much withdrawal she had? zero, none.
0: I didn't even know that was possible.
1: <laughs> yep, It is possible. Because what I believe would drop people will tell this is what I have heard, right? People will tell you that the body craves that substance. That's why it's so hard to quit. So if you tried to quit, the body's gonna crave, you know, you're gonna have this craving for heroin. I say that's impossible. The body doesn't regulate heroin, the brain doesn't regulate heroin. heroin is a resource right, to stop pain. I said, because it doesn't regulate it, it's not going to crave it. I says, what the body is craving is relief from pain, mm-hmm. not, really, not, not the substance, right? It doesn't regulate that substance. So when you look at it that way, if your mind has built up a code that heroin stops pain, can you see why your mind's not going to want you to stop heroin? Mm-hmm. And so if you try to stop it, what's it going to do? it's going to create physical pain to make mm-hmm. you go get it. Right. And you, you've you obviously known a lot of people who've been in addiction. I've talked to addicts who will tell me that when they know their dealers on their way, they stop, they don't feel the withdrawal. They haven't touched the substance.
0: We're Pavlov's dogs.
1: Yes, we are. <laughs> addiction is in the mind. It's not mm-hmm. in the body. The mind is so afraid that it's going to die without the substance. You've built a very strong code through this repetition that it will create physical pain to make you get something. I believe it's a code that you built without even realizing you were building it. So when we eliminate the the loop of trauma that was activating the pain, that's why she was able to so quickly get out of any withdrawal. And then we also put her on some supplements because a lot of times people been drinking a lot or doing drugs, they've zapped a lot of their (laughs) vitamins and nutrients and supplements. So we want to keep the body getting that right. So we will, we put her on a steady dose of some of the vitamins and supplements, B vitamins, omegas, things like that. She had no withdrawal. Absolutely none. She was off all her medications within about three months, never went back on to any of them.
0: Yeah, this is a fascinating thing to me also, and I don't know what kind of medications you're speaking of with her, but just even in AA over all of these years, I have seen so many people come in get sober. And at a certain point, and I can't tell you if it, you know, six months, a year, whatever, I have no idea. I don't, I would definitely say there is not a set time. It would be different for everyone, but I've watched so many people get sober and really engage in recovery and start that emotional maturing process and go off their antidepressants, anti-anxiety medication, ADD medication. I've just, I've seen it hundreds of times where I, for me, I'm not saying I would never take medication. I'm super grateful that I've never had to. And I'm very dedicated to taking care of myself and exercising. So hopefully I won't have to, (laughs) but it's because I just, I don't like pharma in general, you know, but it, it to I, me is it's so fantastic to know that we really are self healable. <laughs> you know, like I really can heal myself.
1: Our minds and bodies are designed to heal. So yes, I gentleman. you'll you'll see his testimonial. Uh, Mario, Mario came into me ten years early. He had a car accident. He lost his leg just above the knee, so he'd been in a lot of pain. He was a veterinarian, very successful veterinarian gave up his whole business. And for the previous four years before he came in to see me, was in such severe depression, was so much pain, they had him on oxycodone. And so when he came in to see me, the first thing he says when he sees me is he says, is this program going to help me get off this oxycodone? Right. So I'm not an MD. I can't tell him not to take it or to take right, it. Right. And I said, well, let's talk about it when we're finished. So when we're finished, he asked me again. And so in his testimonial here, he says, Dr. Wood, what he said to me saved my life. He says, Mario, you can stop anytime you want to. And he says, he got into his car to drive. And he says he took one because he'd been sitting there for four or five hours. He says, but within 15 minutes, he was like, why'd I do that? He got home. He took all his pills, him and his wife. They flushed him down the toilet. He shredded his prescriptions. Has never touched it again. Cold turkey. No withdrawal.
0: Wow. That's crazy. I thought with
1: nobody had ever said that to him that you can stop anytime his mind didn't need it.
0: Yeah. And this is part of, I certainly see this a lot with, with drug addiction. It's almost like there's this mindset that people feel like they have to take something to feel better, Mm -hmm. no matter what it is, you know, I mean, from, and I see this, I own um, men's sober living homes also. And, and I'll see guys, I'll see these guys come in and like, they're just taking everything, you know, from pre-workout. I'm like, I think you're abusing your pre-workout at this point, you know, (laughs) but it's like, everything is, Oh, let me take this. Let me take this. Let me take this. And I'm like, wow, you don't have to take a pill to feel better. Like you can figure out some other things. Like everything doesn't require another substance, but I think it's a part of that code, like you're saying, where you create that code that kind of tells you, you have to have a substance to feel better, even if it's not an abusable substance.
1: 100%. I always talk about it this way. If you took your computer and every time you hit the M key, your computer shut off. So what you would do is you take your computer to your computer therapist and your computer therapist would say, whatever you do, don't touch the M key. (laughs) Stay away from words with M's in them. Don't associate with anybody who talks with words that have M's in them, right? What I say is it's a coding error. All we have to do is write code that the M key doesn't shut the computer off, becomes an M key again. That's the only thing that we need to do in this situation. We just need to rewrite the code. So the way to do that is first get to the root of what started the coding error, right? that coding error didn't come in overnight. That came in from repetition. So what created that to happen? So we get to the root of the trauma. We get that resolved. Now we want to start working on the codes. It's a lot easier to change codes when you don't have the default coming in from the pain all the time.
0: Right, right. So
1: I have people go through, if, if they're from the addiction program, they'll do 60 days of audios. If it's just the regular program, they'll do 30 days of audios. The idea is, is we want to build new codes, new neural pathways. And I take Mm -hmm. you through, right, how to do that and how to start building, because your mind doesn't necessarily want to change a code quickly Mm -hmm. because it's adaptive and survival based. So we basically have to, that's why I call it walking out addiction and walking out behaviors.
0: And And your brain will fight you every step of the way
1: but it's going to fight you less when you don't have the pain
0: for sure. Yeah.
1: So it's A lot easier to do that.
0: Yeah. And I, I feel like you have the fast track, right? <laughs> like yeah. doing something like this is the fast track because ultimately even in my 15 years of sobriety and, you know, it feels like a hundred years in 12 step programs and all of my reading and researching and figuring myself out and learning my brain and how to retrain it. This has taken me over a decade, right? Where you've got the fast track. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, exactly. And that, and that's the whole idea is when people go into AA or NA or whatever, they're trying to change the codes, mm-hmm. but they're fighting into the wind mm-hmm. because they didn't fix the trauma. Mm-hmm. So they, you can yes. alter those codes, mm-hmm. right? You can alter those codes even in the wind. Yeah, imagine how hard it is to do that. You're fighting against gale force winds coming at you, trying to push you back.
0: Well, I know, doctor, but this is why we are the strongest people on the planet.
1: <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah. Well, when you yeah, when you see people who have come through addiction, boy, they're capable of anything when they get that beat. That's what
0: I tell everybody. I'm like, you guys have no idea what you're really capable of. We are such incredibly strong people. And I would say, too, even in active addiction, you know, really the set of circumstances that we're dealing with on a daily basis, right? Having an overactive brain and having some anxiety, depression, ADD, like we all have some combination of those, having the underlying trauma that sometimes you're not even aware of. I know for me, I was years into my sobriety before I really understood that I had trauma. Like I had never, I just, it wasn't a part of conversation. I didn't know about trauma. I knew I had some crazy stuff in my life, but I would have never thought it was trauma because I thought trauma were all of those big things. Like we talked about And Obviously I've never been in war. You know, I haven't had any violent crime. So it's just such a much longer drawn out process. So what we are dealing with to live and survive as people with addiction on a daily basis, it truly, we are the strongest people built.
1: And, and that's why it's so important to get to the root of the problem and fix it. Yeah. So I had another gentleman, this is what was really interesting. He said to me, I've been in re- a very successful business guy doing, it's still making a lot of money, but struggling. His mm-hmm. daughter was going through for her PhD, she heard about our program. And she to she says, Can you help my father, like he's in and out of rehabs, right? He's really struggling, he's a good guy, but just can't beat this. So I took him through our program. And what he said to me, which was really profound, he said, I can tell you the difference between what you do and what everybody else is doing. He mm-hmm. says, when I'd get out of rehab, or he says, I even get out of a meeting, he says, "I couldn't stop thinking about wanting to use." He says, "I got out of your program. I don't think about it anymore."
0: Yeah, that's it's not amazing.
1: On my mind.
0: Yeah, that's right? amazing.
1: Yeah, because that trauma is not looping. Yeah. So, you know, if and and I and I agree that AA and NA have helped a lot of people, right? So, however, they haven't fixed the problem that created it. So they've created new neural pathways, some new codes mm-hmm. to respond. But that's burning on the sidelines. Mm-hmm. And as long as that is burning on the sidelines, something can activate it. That's what we want to eliminate because this is, I don't-
0: this is something too, when when I'm doing, especially with interventions, because oftentimes, as an interventionist, when a family calls you in, it's not their first rodeo you know sometimes it is but oftentimes you're dealing with families where the person has been to treatment multiple times and it hasn't worked sometimes there've even been multiple interventions and for me as a professional i'm not going to do an intervention and put someone back in addiction treatment if they've been four five six times Right. And they're not seeing any improvement. I'm not saying that they have to have it all together and have life figured out and stay sober and live happily ever after at that point. But you want to see periods of sobriety getting longer and relapses getting shorter, right? Progress is still progress. But to me, I, w- I always tell the family, I'm like, listen, at this stage of the game, we're treating the wrong issue that we've got to get them some trauma therapy because- yes. All the side effects of trauma, all those symptoms of trauma are making it impossible for this person to stay sober. You can't, you can go to addiction treatment a million times. You're just going to hear the same stuff over and over again. So we're treating the wrong issue.
1: Right. Working on all the symptoms. I have anxiety. I have depression. I have ADHD. I have all these things. So when people come in and tell me that, I say, okay, those are the symptoms. Right. not what you have.
0: Yes. And it's not who you are. Because I see a lot of people adopt this, like this is their person. This is their identity is I am bipolar. I am anxiety. I have high anxiety. Like it becomes their identity. And I'm like, these are symptoms. This isn't. The, the sum total of who you are as a human being. This is one of your pieces, but it doesn't have to be the dominant piece either.
1: Exactly. I, I had a, as an example, I had a lady come in and for the first 15 minutes she wants to share with me all these things that she's gone on has happened in her life. When she goes through this, you know, list of all these things that happened. And then I said to her, I said, is there anything else? And she looks at me, and she goes, that was a lot. Don't you think? And I said, yeah, no, that was a lot. I says, however, for the last 15 minutes, I learned a lot about what happened to you, but I haven't learned anything about you yet. So now let's start talking about you.
0: Yeah.
1: Right. Just a different way of looking at it. That's just what happened to you. Yeah. Right. Those are just what you're experiencing because of what happened to you. The anxiety, the reason your mind is doing that, it has a purpose. The thing that I always tell people, as I said, Forget the fact that you've been told that you can sabotage yourself. I said, it's impossible to do that. Addiction is not sabotage. I said, the brain cannot sabotage itself. It's designed for survival. It's impossible for it to do anything to hurt you. It's designed to keep you alive. So when does it want to stop pain? Now, right? It wants to stop it immediately because it's the only thing it understands. Mm -hmm. If you have pain, the pain is now. If that substance stops the pain now, mission accomplished. Mm -hmm. Why did people jump out of the buildings at 9-11? The logical part of their brain would be saying, if we jump out of a building, we're going to die. But the survival brain said, we're going to die if we don't move. So it creates the action to move, even though that doesn't make any logical sense. But mm-hmm. when did it want to stop the pain? Right now.
0: Right now. The only right.
1: way to stop the pain right now was to leave the building. That makes no sense on a logical standpoint, but makes perfect sense to your survival brain. Right. It did what it was supposed to do.
0: Your brain went so badly to support you in what you're doing too. And this was something when, when I was brand new sober, uh, there was a lot of information coming out about the genetic pieces of addiction where it had been theory for a long time. They were finally really proving some of that stuff and uh, not that genetics cause addiction, just make us more vulnerable, right? Even if you have the wiring doesn't mean you're definitely going to have addiction, but it was And I think I said this to you before we started recording, it was the first time for me that I felt like I was fixable, you know, like I wasn't just defective, that I was actually fixable. And when I started to understand the brain and plasticity and pruning, right, it's like when you start to... To change and take different actions, your brain will change with you and it will get stronger in those new areas that you're using because it wants to support you.
1: (laughs) All the time. It's always built on survival. It was interesting. I read an article which was fascinating. It was written by a German sniper during World War II. And he talked about when they fought against the Russians. He says the Russians didn't have much in terms of weapons, he says, but they had a lot of people. So their strategy was to charge at the German lines, right? To try to overtake them with just sheer numbers. So obviously as a sniper, one of his things is to have to shoot them. So he says, but we would shoot them and then another wave would come. And then we'd shoot them and another wave would come. He says, they were relentless. He says, and then I figured out a way to stop them. He says, I shot them in the stomach. He says, so what happened was When the next wave came, they saw all their comrades lying on the ground, screaming in pain. That was a bigger deterrent than death. Wow. Isn't that powerful? Yeah. So that tells you what happens when people are in addiction. That pain is so powerful Mm -hmm. that they'll do anything to be out of that pain. And, And if they found a resource, whether that's drugs or alcohol, that stops that pain that survival brain said good job yeah not because it's trying to hurt you right your, your survival your subconscious mind has no relationship to time so it solved the problem in exactly the time frame that is designed to solve a problem which is now now <laughs> yeah. and so now the logical brain says yeah but if i take this drug or i take this alcohol i may create a problem with addiction down the road that makes no sense to your subconscious mind. It's saying, what's down the road mean? What's what's next week mean? Has no relationship to it at all. So it doesn't see consequences to actions. It right. only sees as a, as a solution to a problem.
0: Right. Which makes sense also in why it seems like people have to get to that really low rock bottom to to take it seriously enough, to take enough action to get sober, right? Because you finally get in enough pain that you have to really get into action because I love this movement now in recovery where people really are stopping much earlier on. You know, not everybody is going to that crazy Hollywood style rock bottom moment. People are stopping earlier sometimes, but I think, still overall, certainly for a hardcore chronic alcoholic like I was. I had to get to that moment of desperation. It had to be absolutely desperate and horrific for me to go, "Oh,
1: <laughs> so I have were,
0: to do something different."
1: <laughs> you just described exactly what we were just talking about. Is that pain became bigger,
0: right? exactly, right, than yes. the
1: other pain? So it's going to make an alteration to fix right. that
0: right yeah and that that makes so much more sense to me too because i will see people who have my final final thing was i got in an accident i crashed my car at 70 miles an hour on the freeway and i hit another car and uh there were a few moments after my accident that i thought i had killed that guy and i don't remember a lot about my accident i obviously was not in my right mind But I remember these moments, being on the side of the freeway, pouring blood, and thinking, "Wow, I have to call my mom now and tell her I just killed somebody." Right? How do you do that? You know, especially when you have a near perfect mom. And thankfully, obviously, that guy was not hurt at all. I was actually the only one hurt. But, but that moment was what it took for me to really understand that I had to do something different. Now, listen, I had DUIs. I went to jail. Like I did all the things that you think would have been stopping points, but that pain was not great enough until my accident. That's what it took for me.
1: So the other pain was more powerful than the DUIs in the jail, right? And so when you had a different pain that was what the difference was
0: right and so i see clients that will relapse even when they're doing things or or creating consequences that seem horrible right like I've had, I had a client years ago that burned his kitchen down twice, you know, like putting a pizza in the oven when he was drunk and passing out. He did it two times and (laughs) caught his house on fire. I've had people fall into the campfire being drunk, right? I had somebody light their face on fire, lighting a cigarette and it caught her hair. Um, Like all of these things that you would think, wow, that's a pretty good indicator, but that pain has not been significant enough to alter the behavior.
1: Yep. And and that's really the key. So the idea is, I think that the best message that you're giving to people out there, which is that hope, Mm -hmm. that you're not stuck in this. So you got into addiction, right? Because you were in pain. That makes perfect sense. And As we were talking before the show, or before we started recording, is I've never had a drink in my life. I've Mm -hmm. never touched a drug in my life. But I never had pain. Mm -hmm. So how hard was it for me to do that? That had nothing to do with my character or willpower. I hadn't experienced life the way you did. I didn't experience life the way other people had. If I had, and this is what I always say to everybody, if I lived your life exactly the way you lived your life, right, and you lived mine, we'd be in different spots here. You'd be sitting here, and I'd be sitting there.
0: Right, right. Our brains can't do
1: it any different, Right.
0: Okay, my last question, out of curiosity, what are your thoughts on people doing like self-administered EMDR and things like that?
1: You're better off. I, I'm. I think you can do some of that. I think your design, like our online program, you can do on your own. So I do believe that it's possible as long as you know what you're doing. But if you've had anything that's really, really severe that you may not be a bad idea to have somebody work with you. So, especially if you've had, you know, severe flashbacks or something like that, you may want to have somebody with you, but you know, if you've had, you know, typical kinds of traumas, even, even serious traumas, but you've just been experiencing anxiety or fear or anger, right? Yeah. You can definitely do that. I believe you can heal.
0: Yeah. I, I love that. That stuff is available for sure. But I think exactly what you said are, are my thoughts as well. If you have some pretty significant stuff, I think it's best to have guidance and have a professional with you for sure.
1: But but I like I said, I always think that we can we can heal ourselves when I worked with a US Army sniper who had to shoot and kill a 12 year old boy. And he just was sobbing. By the time I was finished, he could talk about it completely in complete detail. And he said to me, he goes, how the bleep did you do this, right? And what I said to him is, I haven't done anything. I said, for eight years, your mind was trying to get you not to shoot. Your mind updated, right? I just guided it, right? You're fully capable of doing that all the time.
0: That brain is magical, I'm telling you.
1: We are just beginning to touch on the power of our brains, right? There are so much going on in there that is just fascinating. As you know, you've been studying this as well. I just was more and more fascinated with the power of our abilities. It's just incredible, the things that we do. Yeah. If you've grown up in world that have told you you can't do it, right? you can't succeed, you're not smart enough, you're not good enough, you're not lovable, you can see where people start to get into this distress and then their nervous system gets dysregulated. And I can absolutely see how people can get into addiction so easy. It's so easy to do.
0: It's such an, a fast and easy solution, which, you know, ultimately is what we're always looking for. <laughs> you
1: know? Yeah. Who wants to be in pain? <laughs> right. Nobody wants right. to be in pain. Right. right. As soon as you start feeling pain, it's like, give me something for that. Yeah. I, I Make it in.
0: stop. Make it yeah. stop. stop. <laughs>
1: So that's why people get into it. And that's why I always say there's nothing wrong with you. Yeah. right. This is not a character issue, right? If it was, you would have stopped it, right? We talked about Daryl Strawberry. I know Daryl Strawberry. That guy's a – I mean, here's a guy who's probably one of the greatest hitters of all time, one of the most amazing athletes you'll ever meet. Are you going to tell me that he didn't care and he just wanted to throw away that career?
0: Right. Just to
1: die? No hear his story, right? Hear what he went through, right? He had a father, right? That was very abusive to him. So there's where his pain was coming from. So of course he wants to stop that pain.
0: Yeah. So tell everybody where and how to find you and anything else that you want to throw in about your programs and what's available.
1: Um, well, the program, if they want to do either a, a personal session with me or do the digital online experience, they just go to get, G-E-T tip, T-I-P-P, which is the name of the program, gettip.com. And I think if you do the slash addiction, I think we're offering something um, a special for you guys, for your listeners. It's a discount. I think I also get a, a chapter of one of my books. Oh, nice. That's that's in there so they can check out. I think it's for emotional concussions. So they can get a chapter of that. They can get a discount on that. Um, I always encourage them to go to our website and look at some of the stories. You'll see the stories of people who have gone through maybe something similar to what they've gone through. The thing that's really amazing is like I talked about when I first met my wife and she told me about the trauma and abuse that she experienced. But I was sworn to secrecy. Right. She didn't want that. It was... If she felt that shame and guilt. Now she'll talk to you about it.
0: Yeah. No
1: problem at all. Right. Yeah. It's the same yeah. thing with addiction. You don't need to feel shame and guilt about addiction. Right. It's human behavior. You got stuck in a code. Right. And you inadvertently built a code without realizing you were doing it. And so th- that shame and guilt is the reason you feel it. It's an emotion. What's the purpose of the emotion? For you not to be into addiction. Right, but you're already right. in addiction. So by adding shame and guilt, we're just making it worse. Right? We need to treat people differently and let them know that there's nothing wrong with them. Right. And that there yeah. is help out there and they can absolutely defeat it and spend the rest of the life like you have. For right? sure. Right. And that's possible for everybody who's listening, if, whether they're in addiction or even feeling like, you know, I don't want to fall back into addiction. You can beat any of that. Yeah.
0: I know for me, when I started thinking about doing EMDR for myself, I mean, I definitely obviously came to the understanding that I had some trauma for sure. And where I felt like I was functioning and doing well in my life overall, I definitely know I have some of that stuff holding me back. I know I could be performing better in my life if I unloaded some of this stuff, that's just so deep that I just don't get it either. You know, when you process through this stuff and you're doing trauma work, and this is a woo-woo question because I'm woo-woo. Um, does it work on mindset stuff, right? Like, because you have so many of us for sure are are raised with that scarcity mindset, which gives you crazy things with money and abandonment. And, you know, like all, that scarcity mindset is a huge, huge mindset issue that affects every part of your life. So does processing trauma and doing this stuff work with things like that?
1: I'm glad you asked that question. That was, that was great. That's why I call this a performance program. It's not trauma therapy. There's nothing wrong with anybody. What I have found is that when we resolve the trauma, performance goes up because you can stay present. So I've worked with world-class athletes. Um, So I worked with Marco Chiseto. Marco Chiseto was a double amputee, lost both his legs to frostbite from a suicide attempt. Oh, wow. Uh, And so he was a marathon runner from Kenya. So he lost obviously both his legs. So he had to learn to walk again. Then he had to learn to run on those blades that they Mm -hmm, run on.
0: mm -hmm.
1: So they contacted me and they said, we really think he's an Olympic hopeful, but he's plateaued. He's not improving anymore, no matter how much more training we give him. We believe it's in his mind now. And so when Marco came to see me, what I said is Marco, when we have unresolved trauma, we actually affect the mitochondria in the cell." the ATP and the energy of the cell has also been compromised. So for my daughter and her intestinal area, the cells go into a cell danger response. Those cells become hardened to protect the integrity of the cell. So nothing can get into the cell becomes hardened and inflamed. So nothing's getting into the cell, but nothing's getting out of the cell, including the energy, the ATP, right? So when we resolve the trauma, it releases the energy so marco ran in a race nine days after seeing me took 15 seconds per mile off his time wow huge yeah then a few weeks this is in 2019 a few weeks later he runs in the boston marathon and he breaks the world record so he's now the world record holder for amputees runs in the chicago marathon a couple months later and takes another five minutes off his time wow. And gets signed by nike so did I make Marco a better runner? No. I just freed up that energy that was always available for him that he just couldn't tap. We all have another gear. We yes. all have another level, right? What's interfering with us, what I have found is that when that energy is compromised, we don't have it available for focused, for performance, for healing. When that energy frees up, I've got so many examples of people who businesses have taken off because you know, they just got that energy freed up. They got their mind to be able to focus better. Rob Killian was running in the Spartan World Championships. There were three guys favored to win the championship. So uh, the lady who runs Spartan Japan said to me on Thursday, she says, can you work with Rob tomorrow, Friday? He's running in the World Championships on Sunday. She says, I think you can help him. You know, I want to see how well he can compete against these three other guys and see how close he can get to them. So I worked with Rob on Friday. He ran in the world championships on Sunday and won it. He's the world champion. Wow, nice. He's the next closest guy by a minute.
0: See, you just put it into words what I knew was happening inside of me. You know, Mm -hmm. I just knew that... There's a piece that is still missing, and I just know it is connected to unresolved trauma. Yeah. And I know I could hit that next level for sure with resolving all of that stuff. but, but I'll yeah. send you the
1: article there's an article that was just done in a study about the mitochondria on how uh, that trauma is affecting the mitochondria. So yeah, that's amazing.
0: I would, I will love that too, because when you think about it in that way, also, I mean, you think about illness and inflammation, all the things that happen in the body that are solvable.
1: Yep. It's just not doing the maintenance. So if you're in a constant state of fight or flight, your body's getting minimal maintenance done. As soon as we resolve that trauma, it goes back into maintenance mode. I've been healthy my entire life. I played hockey, I'm from Canada, Bragger. I know, I know. <laughs> but I, I used to just, I was adopted. So we didn't know my family history. So I played hockey, I had 60 stitches, six concussions, and never missed a hockey game. Now today, they probably wouldn't have let me play. Yeah, right. But back Then it was just like, you know, go ahead if you feel fine. And so I believe that because I didn't have any trauma. I was getting a lot more restorative sleep and rest than my teammates, who I didn't realize were dealing with physical, emotional, and sexual abuse. So I'd heal in two or three days, they'd heal in two or three weeks.
0: I didn't even know sleep issues were a side effect of trauma until just a handful of years ago. And I've always said, like, I don't sleep well, and I would back up that sentence with, But I'm okay with that because I feel safer kind of always being awake. You know, like every little sound, like I feel like I am almost always somewhat awake. I hear every sound, every movement, every move my dog makes. I didn't even know that was a trauma thing.
1: It is. (laughs) so I would, again, when I was, especially when I was younger, I sometimes didn't even remember hitting the pillow. I was gone. So we basically have a theta brainwave sleep where the mind processes. That's when we dream, the mind's processing. And then we go into delta, which is dreamless sleep. And that's where the body gets maintenance done. Mm -hmm. So if your mind's still processing trauma, you stay in theta longer. You don't get into delta, the maintenance mode, enough. Mm -hmm. So I was processing what happened to me during the day pretty quickly. Right. I was getting more delta restorative sleep of course, if I'm getting two or three times the delta sleep that my teammates are getting, of course I'm healing faster.
0: Right, this makes right. perfect sense.
1: Have I had their trauma? I would have stayed like my wife. She never slept. She we used to joke that if I came in the room and undid a button on my shirt, she'd wake up
0: for sure. Yeah, and I even I, I remember this too. Even from being very young, like even as a teenager, I didn't sleep well, and that's just how I've always been. So. I don't, it's, I just thought that's how I was, but I do know too, in active addiction, when I was drinking, I would always say that like, one of the reasons I drank was to quiet the noise in my head, you know, because it helps you go to sleep because my brain is just going nonstop. And now oftentimes I will fall asleep with the television on because I call it the committee the right. sub, the subconscious committee, um, sure. I have to give the committee something to focus on. So I'll just turn on news or a documentary or something because I can't let the committee just focus on our stuff. You know, if the committee is flying through my day and what I didn't do and what I have to do tomorrow, I will never relax. So I have to have something for the committee to focus on so I can relax.
1: Here's what's interesting. That's one of the things I talk about the science in the program. When you're watching TV or reading a book, you go into alpha brainwave state. Alpha is super relaxed and super focused. So your mind is singularly focused on what it's doing now. It's staying present. That's why it was feeling better.
0: Yeah, then it stops picking on me. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah. So your brain and figure you had figured out a way, right. Instead of the uh, alcohol, you could watch TV and get the same effect.
0: Yeah. But it's I can't, I can't turn on anything that I can get too engaged in. It can't be too interesting, right. you know, because if I find something fascinating, then I'll be up watching it because I want to learn more. So yeah, it has to be some sort of white noise, so to speak. There's a,
1: there's a science behind it as to why it's actually happening. So you're going into a very relaxed, super focused state, which allows your mind to just be at peace. It stays present. Yeah. And so that's one of the things I talk about is that's where I want you performing. My wife used to describe it. I thought it was interesting that she, because she'd say to me at times, what are you thinking about? And I would go, nothing. And she'd go, no, come on, tell me what you're thinking about, right? And i go, no, nothing. That made no sense to her that I edge out like, because the way she described it is that she had non-stop the, the way she described it, it was like a
0: non-stop. Non-stop Yes, right. it's non-stop.
1: And it, it made no sense to her that I didn't do that, right? And it didn't make any sense to me that she couldn't do that.
0: I didn't even know that was possible. I mean, you're saying it right now. And I'm like, is it really possible to just it have ab- peace?
1: Absolute peace, right? We're capable of doing that.
0: So right. I went the direction of retraining the chatter to be positive and uplifting and supportive instead of negative, you know. And if it's if I start to slip back, then I take some time, meditate, visualize, you know, listen to something motivational or inspirational to get back in that mindset. Because if I keep my brain, if I keep it happy and stimulated and challenged, it it's pretty happy. But If I slack for five minutes, that thing will turn on me.
1: Because it defaults (laughs) to survival.
0: Yes. So what's
1: interfering with survival? Uh Uh-oh, we're being hurt. Something is creating pain, right? So what you've done is figured out ways. But again, that's what I'm talking about, is that's managing, living, and coping with it. Right. It's going to be better to fix it. So, that you didn't need to manage. So, then when you do the meditation, you do the yoga, you do those things, they're much more powerful.
0: Listen, we are fixing it, my friend. You and me, we're going to fix it. Absolutely. We are going to fix it. I'm super excited about this. But thank you so much for spending this time with me and sharing all of this incredible information with my listeners. I love whenever we can offer. Education and alternative points of view. I mean, this stuff is so, so, so important. And and for so many people that maybe are just starting a recovery journey, there's not you don't know a lot. You know, when I got sober, I didn't know a lot. I know a lot now, but I didn't back then. So the more we can be supportive and and offer some information and education, the better.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. No, I really enjoyed it. I love, like I said. It's an area that I think really needs to be addressed. So many people are suffering that don't need to be suffering, thinking that there's no hope. Right? There's absolute hope. We, there's we have
0: absolute this, hope for we sure. Have this brilliant
1: device sitting on the top of our shoulders, right? That is capable of some incredible things.
0: Yeah. Um, and we barely was, even exactly. know all the incredible things it can do. I mean, we've just scratched the surface. It's powerful though.
1: Just need to it. I always say. You think of the brain as a computer; the body's the printer.
0: Mm-hmm. You can have all the ink
1: and paper in the printer, but if the computer's sending glitches, right?
0: Right, right. That's a great way to look at it.
1: <laughs> right.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you again. I appreciate you spending this time with us.
1: Well, Angela, I really enjoyed it. Thank you for the opportunity. You've reached the end of another great episode of the Addiction Unlimited podcast